Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Primordial Soup Pot. My name is Aaron Johnson. And I'm Rustin Perret. Every two weeks, Rustin and I get together to talk about topics like ecology, natural history, evolution, and just the strange side of nature in general. Every episode, Aaron and I will pick a theme for the general uh, overview of the episode. And uh, within that theme, each of us will pick a specific topic. Neither of us knows what the other t- what the other has picked. So in this in that way, we are in the same boat as our audience. And this we are week, surprising one another. We are exactly. This week, our overall theme is There's brains and neurology. Yes, exactly. How did how was your research for this t- uh, episode, Aaron? So I had something like I I thought of it before and you brought up brains in the past. I'm like, I don't know what to talk about. And I'm like, you know what? This kind of relates to it. So I'm kind of repurposing an idea, but it it still works. It works. Okay. You made it sound like a real fringe topic. I mean, it is a fringe topic. What about you? How is the research for you? Oh, I had a topic in mind right away when I picked this theme. Pun very much intended. But yeah, no, I, I, I'm very excited to start this episode. Uh, I think my research was a lot of fun this time around. All right. I believe I'm up first. Yep. Go ahead. So I'm going to be talking today about prions. Are you familiar with them? That sounds familiar, but no. It's in every bio, like AP or honors or 101, there's always a little footnote for prions. And that's it. It gets nothing else. You get a little picture. You get a little text. It's that in the corner. All right. So fill me in. What do we got? So when we think of diseases, usually the ones that come to mind are stuff like viruses, bacteria, fungi. You know, the common stuff. I say that prions are like the forgotten black sheep of the pathogen family. So viruses in and of themselves are very simple. I mean, they are just a membrane a few proteins, and they have some genetic information within. It varies from virus to virus, but that's about it. I mean, if you want to break it down like that, that description could describe, you know, like all of us. Okay, but there's, like, there's organelles within the cell. There's a nuclear membrane. There's all kinds of things Organelles made of what? There's organelles. Yeah, organelles are made of proteins so that description still applies right okay but there's just but viruses that's it like they are simple they're not even considered alive oh no no I, i'm just totally messing with you and okay. playing devil's advocate here i understand your point so like i said viruses are bare bones like they're just they're not considered alive they have to use other cells to reproduce Prions are even more basic than that in the sense they have no genetic information at all. They are just a single misfolded protein. Do you kind of remember these now? No. No. Keep going. So they're the only transmissible disease that has no genetic information. Okay, now now I'm just confused. How how the hell does this work? So I'm going to... For those who don't know, I will explain how proteins work just a little bit for some background information. So a protein is, imagine I have a necklace with a variety of beads. The sequence of the beads is the amino acid, which say each bead represents a different one. 
I believe there's about 20 some amino acids. I don't remember from biochemistry. And for each protein, it could be just a couple amino acids or it could be thousands of amino acids. So I take that necklace and I will twist and fold it all over itself, kind of like a tinfoil ball until I get a 3D structure. And that's a protein in the most simplest way I can describe it. Probably and, better to just look up a photo. And then at the end of this whole process, a gym bro mixes it in the form of a powder mix, and then puts it in a blender with some yogurt and kale and slurps it up after a workout. I don't know who that is. A, a gym bro? Like, you know, after a Oh, workout? I th- I thought the guy's name was Jim Bro. <laughs> <laughs> I just assumed he was like a hockey player or something. No, no a gym bro, you know, like a bro yes, I, who I goes to the I gym. I'm just imagining somebody actually naming their kid that. Although there are, of course, there are guys who were actually named Jimbo. So you're not that far off. There's got to be one out you. there. Yeah, one of them is the coach of, I think, the Texas A&M football team. His name is actually Jimbo. <laughs> Anyways, so... With proteins, the 3D structure is super important because that determines its function. If a protein is denatured or the structure is altered, it won't work. It won't do what it's intended to. And proteins do virtually everything in the body. So reinforced cell membranes, transporting molecules, opening channels. I mean, the vast majority of tissue in the body is a protein. Right. Hair, fingernails. Pretty much everything is a protein. Yep. Yep. So prions are misfolded proteins, but they work a little bit different. So usually when a protein's misfolded, like I said, the shape is important. It just doesn't do its job. When a prion comes along, they will bump into the properly folded ones and they'll mess them up. And they'll alter the shape of that protein so it no longer functions properly. And then that one can also do it. So it's like a chain reaction. So it's not even really like a living organism. It's like a glorified domino effect, right? It, it, it's not alive. So the best way I can describe this is, Rustin, imagine if you made a flock of like origami swans and they're all just kind of vibing, like a big group of them. Now imagine I ball up a piece of paper and just throw it at them. And when that piece of paper bumps into them, it kind of hits them in a way that they also crumble up and then they keep doing that. That's kind of like what a prion does. So a prion is basically like the spitball coming out of the corner of a middle school math class. Yes, but that spitball has to hit other papers and turn those papers into spitballs. Oh, that definitely happened. And ad infinitum. Papers were hit, other spitballs were made, and pretty soon we had a war on our hands. (laughs) Yeah, so exactly like that. And the rough part is, since these prions are part of the human body, the immune system doesn't recognize it, and there's really no way for the body to fight back. Because it's not alive. It's part of you. It's just a part of you that got altered. Wow, okay. So here's how it links back to brains, is that the prions affect, they call them prion proteins. It gets a little confusing. So prions affect the prion proteins in the brain, which are largely found in the brain and nervous system. And because they affect the brain, they are pretty much always fatal. 
So what do the prion proteins do when they're not messed up? When they're not, I, I'm not certain, but they make up a bulk portion of the gray matter in the brain. Okay. Uh, right. I mainly know what happens when they get messed up. Okay, so prions can affect many animals, and I think with more research, we'll identify more. But primarily, it's found in livestock, various hoofed animals, humans, and ostriches. I I didn't see any other birds, but I know there's at least one identified in ostriches. Huh. In ostriches. And these, this ailment mainly affects the brain? Yes. Now, you might know it by a different name. The mad cow disease. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I want to go back to ostriches for a second here. There was a prion found in an ostrich brain. Dude, I know nothing more other than that there is one. Right. I didn't read about it at all. If I'm a brain disease that is going to affect an organism, I am not picking an ostrich. Ostriches are dumb as hell. They have tiny brains. That is a terrible choice. Well, prions aren't another... alive. They're not growing in a sense. They're just something goes wrong and it can spread. And I'll explain how that happens. But it's not like like a virus or a bacteria wants to grow within you and be passed on. A virus isn't alive, but they need your cells to make more of itself. A prion is just there. Like consider it like a microplastic, you know, it just gets in you. Hmm. So they're like the little piece of a silica chip that just happens to like get lodged somewhere and fuck everything up. Yeah, I guess. Except it can somehow make more silica chips. So mad cow disease or is what is commonly known as. If you want to be technical, you can call it bovine spongiform encephalopathy. And if you want to keep it simple, you can just call it BSE, which is what I'll be doing. And it's a progressive neurological disease, meaning that it only gets worse and it's not curable. Now, it used to be debated that prions were the cause of this, but now it's pretty much unanimously accepted. What were other theories? I didn't even read them, but you can't test for it. So that's why people think it has to be prions. And there's evidence later, which I'll get to. Uh, Okay. But it's pretty much unanimous that it is. So, wait, if you can't test for it, do you just look for certain symptoms? Uh, you, I'll get to how you can see the signs of it. All right, all right, keep going. Okay, so the symptoms start off slow and gradually increase because it does have a long incubation period. You know, if you get like one or two of these little proteins, it's going to take a long time before there's notable damage, even though it can be exponential in the rate they spread. It's still a slow process. It can be up to five years before symptoms really show. And like I said, the prions convert brain proteins into the misfolded variety, and they begin to clump together, and this kills off cells, and it causes parts of the brain to die off. So the way you can check for it is if you take a cross-section of the brain, you'll notice it looks spongier. There's little holes and air gaps everywhere little microscopic holes in the gray matter, hence the name spongiform. And it can only really be truly diagnosed after the animal dies because you have to check the brain. Wait, you're telling me I can't just slice a cow's head open and check to see if it has prions everywhere? I mean, you're welcome to try, but what if you're wrong? Well, 
then dinner is served. <laughs> what if you're a veterinarian? Someone brings their cow in, and you're like, oh, that wasn't prions. Ooh. <laughs> uh. In unrelated news, would anyone like some tenderloin? <laughs> so symptom-wise, it starts off gradual and gets progressively worse. They can include physical traits like limping, poor balance and coordination, loss of muscle control, and behavioral traits can include stuff like delayed response, frenzied behavior, aggression, anxiety, constant pacing, and other strange behaviors. Uh, it kind of varies by animal, but that's where the mad cow name comes in. They act weird. Like I read in one case, they just kept licking their lips. Maybe they had a really tasty patch of grass earlier. And once they first appear, they just get worse. Eventually, they lead to a coma and death. The brain essentially just shuts down. I mean, it's being destroyed from the inside. Uh, that sounds like a really terrible way to go. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, it's not pleasant. And the mad cow disease outbreak started off. It had been in history for like a long time. But the historically, the worst one was in the 1980s in the United Kingdom. And it happens all over the world, but the UK has definitely had it the worst. Okay, so if the prions are just like proteins that are messing up stuff in the brain, how is there how how is it spread? How is there an outbreak? Is it spread? Oh, I'll get to that. That's like okay. that's the key thing because it's it wasn't figured out right away. That was how this whole thing. That's how they stopped the outbreak. Okay, all right. Then by all means, keep going. So by the late 80s, there's only reported to be about 400 infected cattle, which isn't terrible, but it's certainly ramped up by the 90s. And because of this, certain high-risk beef products were banned. I believe it's called Ophol. Maybe it's Ophol, which kind of it's like a blend of all the leftover cow parts like intestines, brains, and nervous tissue. That was banned because they kind of realized where it was accumulating they could you know they could clearly see okay this brain is messed up so it's just basically like the bovine form of haggis basically if they stuffed it into the cow's stomach yeah it was just all the leftover bits that kind of stuff was banned for a little bit but right. largely the outbreak was kind of ignored in 1990, a house cat became infected with prions, and that proved that it could spread to other animals. And following this, a, a lot of other pets started to get infected, particularly anything that fed on pet food made with beef byproducts. And even zoo animals started to get sick, too. I heard reports of a tiger dying along with five antelopes. Oddly specific. Yeah, and for once... And for once, it was something other than the tiger that killed the four antelopes. Yeah. Oh, five antelopes. Oh, five antelopes. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, oddly specific. What they're not telling you is that it was really just four antelopes that died from the actual prions. The fifth one was killed beforehand by the crazy tiger. The, you know. I want to say the fifth one, like the zookeeper just left the door open and ran out, got hit by a car. He's like, yep. Uh, mad cow disease. Got him again. <laughs> <laughs> now the secretary of state for environment food and rural affairs claimed that it posed no harms a human at all and he even encouraged his daughter to eat a burger on live television to prove this point his daughter was four years old at the time and 
I didn't watch the video, but I think she did not want to eat the burger. <laughs> okay. Because everything I read said he attempted to get her to eat it. <laughs> That's also a really messed up thing to do to your daughter, though. Like, you're going to involve your daughter in your, in your, like, agricultural clusterfuck? Like, and, you know, have her eat some possibly, you know, like, yeah, some, like, possibly tainted beef, you know? That's like, just leave your kid out of it. You know, they kind of figured out that the beef was tainted and they knew it was certain products at higher risk than others, but they didn't really do anything about it for a while. And like I said, pets started to get sick too. They were eating like pet food made from beef. And by 1993, over a hundred thousand cattle were confirmed to be infected. So there's quite a jump from just the 400 earlier. So you're saying that we didn't really care about it when it was just cows, but as soon as Fido got sick, people jumped into action? No, not necessarily, because by 1995, it got worse and the first human was infected. Oh. And this was Stephen Churchill. He was one of three people to die in that year. And he got, it was called the variant Creutzfeldt-Jacobs disease, or VCJD which is essentially the same thing, but it's a prion that jumps from cows to affect people. So do a lot of prions do this? Or they, do they jump between species the same way that like viruses are known to do? It's interesting. They're very understudied, and they're not fully understood. But like I said earlier, it was infecting uh, like house cats and zoo animals and pets, like Cats and dogs were all getting it. So that's already a jump from species. They had no reason to assume that it wouldn't infect people. They just said that it wouldn't. And sure enough, a guy got it and he died at the age of 19. And they called this something different, I think, just to differentiate it from mad cow disease. But it essentially was mad cow disease. He got it from the tainted beef. Another victim was Peter Hall. And that guy was a vegetarian. Oh my gosh. He actually that's... contracted it from eating beef as a child. Oh no. That's... Either that or he was faking it. Maybe he was nibbling on some burgers when nobody was looking. <laughs> I hope that was the case because, oh God, that's just terrible. Like, yeah. So by the mid 90s, most government officials accepted this was an issue and they started introducing legislation to fix the problem. And the source of the problem goes all the way back to World War II. So, you see, dairy cows in the United Kingdom were found to have higher dairy yields when they're fed high-protein diets. Thus, in a time when you need war rations for troops, boosting a dairy yield is very important in a time of food scarcity. And this practice continued for a long time. And where do you think they got the extra protein in the animals' feed? Not sure. The animals. So all the leftover cattle bits that aren't eaten, like digestive tract, and most importantly, the brain and nervous tissue, is ground up, dried, and turned into cattle feed. And that's how it kept cycling around. Oh, no. So essentially, one cow just kind of got this spontaneously. Like, it just some of the proteins in his brains went wrong. It can happen, but it's exceedingly rare. 
And it just kind of became a positive feedback loop where it just kept cycling back again and again. And because it had a long incubation period, I mean, that cow maybe could have been slaughtered before anyone realized it had mad cow disease or BSE. You know, it's shit like this, which could have been a possible reason for that one guy becoming a vegetarian. Not that it really did him any good in the end. <laughs> Didn't but... do him any good in the end. Yeah, uh, I can't I can't get over that. That's so, such awful luck. I feel so bad for that guy. Yeah, it, it did not work out for him in the end. And I will say one reason it affected the UK, not other areas. So countries like the United States, most of our dairy cattle is fed soy. And that kind of eliminates the issue. We're not feeding the animals to themselves. But in the UK, they kind of had to make do because, you know, less land to work with. And it was World War II. I mean, they were being bombed. But the practice just continued. And that's why pets, even uh, herbivorous zoo animals, were getting infected because it was in the animal feed. Like the antelopes, they, they were still feeding the antelopes food made from cows, partially at least. Okay. All right. All right. I, I'm not going to lie. When you said that the the solution to this went back to World War II, I was afraid that some like former Nazi had found the cure or something. And I was <laughs> like, oh, no. <laughs> Please, no. But it didn't go that way. And I'm glad it didn't. Uh, oh, yeah. And that's why, remember how I said prions aren't alive? That's how they can survive being dried up and cooked. It would kill bacteria. It would kill a virus. Prion's not alive. Right. It's just there. So It's just there. Proteins will denature under certain conditions, right? Yes, but it seemed that they were resistant to it, or at least just a trace amount was all that was needed. Wow. Okay. So you're saying yeah. that, like, even, even, like, in response to high acidities or... Um, temperatures that would normally denature other proteins, the prions manage to just kind of weather the storm and keep messing shit up? They're tough. I mean, it's hard to just, you know, remove a single prion, you know, and just identify that in and of itself. It's kind of always going to be mixed in with other stuff. So I don't know the exact limits of it, and I think it'd be kind of hard to test that but it passed through animal feed that had already been greatly processed. I mean, it was animal feed. So lots of legislation was passed around the turn into the 21st century, banning these byproducts from being used in cattle or animal feed. And also about 4 million cows were killed during the 90s to help stop the spread. I also read at the time that apparently dairy farmers in the United Kingdom had like a very high suicide rate during this period, which is pretty sad. It had a lot of effects. Yeah, yeah. And the EU actually banned breeding from exporting beef products, I think for about 10 years. Although some countries kept the ban up much longer. China actually had it until 2019. Wow. So they, they were that worried about mad cow disease. Hmm? Yeah, I mean, it can pass through everything although you know once most of these practices were introduced it's really not an issue anymore i would not be worried about it as of now only about a hundred people have died from the vcjd version so that is the one that comes from the cows 
And those that did succumb to it actually might have been genetically disposed to it. But that's still unknown. Okay. So it might not affect every person. But an easy way to avoid it is just, you know, regulations are passed. Don't eat the brain or the nervous tissue. You should be fine. And don't feed it to other animals either. Although apparently even vegetarianism isn't a defense. Okay, well, he said that he got it from uh, eating beef as a child. Because like I said, you can have a long incubation period. Yeah, still, I can't get over that. You really, that's insane. That's like somebody with a crazy fear of heights who never like even goes on plane rides dying by getting thrown off of a building. Like, that's so crazy. Like That, that, that doesn't is- compare because it's like, uh, no, it's like jumping off a building and you get up and you're fine. I'm like, wow, how did I survive that? And then 10 years later, you just explode from the impact. <laughs> it's just really delayed. yeah all right your analogy's better (laughs) yeah and i will say there is not any evidence of people being infected by drinking milk or consuming dairy products so don't have to worry about that nice now bsc has popped up a few times in other countries like the u.s japan and brazil but most of these are pretty small outbreaks and they're easily curved by government regulations like i said sometimes it can just spontaneously happen but if you just avoid that part of the cow, you should be fine. Also, it seems like there's a pretty rare chance of it infecting a person. And, oh yeah, one other thing to add. Cows are not herbivores. They're omnivores. There is no such thing as a pure herbivore. Yeah, cows will eat meat if they get the opportunity. Or not like saying they're going to hunt down prey, but like if something crawls into that grass and they're eating it, uh, okay, they ate it. No, little lizard is gone. It's in their mouth. Not to mention, like, if they need certain nutrients, they'll eat something like a baby chick. Yep. And so what I'm getting from this whole story is that at the end of the story, after the cows go crazy, we then have cows with guns. The YouTube video. (laughs) The hit YouTube video from, what, 2009? (laughs) No, I think it's earlier, 2007. (laughs) That was like dawn of YouTube. It really was, and it's still amazing. I love that video. Aaron does not. (laughs) Not a huge fan. We will fight for (laughs) bovine freedom. I remember when that popped up in my Spotify Discover Weekly. They put in, like, the worst (laughs) songs in that. They really do. I got three covers for the song Flagpole Sitter. And like, yeah, I like the original. I don't need three different covers of it. I mean, I get a lot of covers in my in that playlist because I listen to a lot of covers of songs. Like if I hear a good song and somebody else does a very different version of it, I'm always interested in that. But yeah, it's too many. But yeah, there are some really crazy songs that pop up on that Discover Weekly playlist, man. Oh, absolutely. Spotify needs to get their shit together. They really do. Can't wait to see what my Spotify rap is going to look like. Oh, yeah. that's. I hate fun. when people that's complain always... about it. It's like, well, you listen to the music. <laughs> yeah, I know. The exception is I didn't have premium for a long time. So when I got a Spotify rap, it's like, well, I have no choice in this. It's what Spotify gives me. Okay, that I do understand. But if you have Spotify Premium and you're complaining about what your like rap looks like, like it's, it's you, your own. You listen to the music. Right. It's like going to Subway and saying you got a bad sandwich. You made it. 
Well, that's not really the same thing. You could have gotten like some rancid meat or. Okay, maybe you're like, well, I don't like fish. the way they put it together. You're like, well, that's on you. Okay, but even then, like, you could have been like, hey, I want a little mustard, and then, the, like, the cap falls off as he's as the guy is squirting. <laughs> you wind up with just mustard everywhere. Yeah, he just leaves the cap in there, too. He didn't even <laughs> care. <laughs> he's like, well, I think the cap is edible. Here you go. Uh, I will say, to this day, we're not 100% sure where the BSC outbreak actually started from. It's believed that it either came from a sheep with something called Scrappy or Scarpy. Might be a typo. One or the other, and that is another disease caused by prions. Or a single cow just kind of spontaneously got it. And like I said, positive feedback. You chop up the cow, you feed it to the other cows, they get it. You rinse and repeat. Then what have you. Wait, did did I mishear or did Scrappy-Doo start mad cow disease? Scrappy-Doo. I'm not sure if it's Scrappy or Scarpy because I'm going to say it's Scrappy. It, it's got the little underline with the red squiggle, so it could go either way. I'm not sure. I don't remember. Hmm. I actually okay. got another little quick bit for you. Another disease. All right, hit me. So this is called Kuru disease. And this is a neurodiversion disorder found in the foray people of New Guinea. All right. Kuru comes from their indigenous language in which it means to tremble or to shake. It's also known as the laughing sickness due to the pathological bursts of laughter in the infected. So like the mad cow disease, this affects the nervous system, but this one's divided into three phases. Number one is the ambulance stage. So the victim is able to talk and move around, but they have decreased dexterity and muscle control and they might have difficulty speaking. Next is the sedentary stage where the person can't really walk without support and they're prone to emotional instability and uncontrolled laughter, like I mentioned earlier. And this comes with more frequent tremors. And the last is the terminal stage where the person loses control of most of their body. They often have difficulty swallowing, which can lead to malnutrition. And the person usually dies within three months to a year of stage one. And they don't usually die from the disease. They usually catch something else because they're just in a very weakened state at this point. So usually they'll get like pneumonia and die from that first. But they will die from it regardless. Hmm. Okay. So it's pretty much the same general premise where you're getting prions in your brain. And that's modifying the proteins. And that's killing off cells. And that's creating tiny microscopic little air pockets. So you're kind of losing control of your mental functions. And I guess it varies depending on the region of the brain of what it's hitting, but it does slowly spread. It's going to kill you. It's just a matter of when, not if. Now, like okay. I said, these were a tribe of people in New Guinea, and there were no large dairy farms. So the question remains, where does this come from? And why does it affect women and children in higher rates than the men? What do you think? Oh, um... Yeah, you gotta think for this one. I legitimately don't know. Well, the 4A people were cannibals. Oh, okay. So, it's kind of similar to the BSE with the cows, where one person gets it, and it'll cycle back around. Got it, got it, got it, okay. They engaged in endocannibalism, which is where the dead were eaten, 
I will say they didn't hunt down and eat other people's. It was a funeral ritual, and it was thought to help the dead pass on in their culture. So it's not like they're brutal hunters that are killing innocents. This is largely consenting, and that's like part of their funeral remembrance for a person. Well, and typically, the brains and the nervous tissue were consumed by the women and the children. Uh, which is where the prions would be concentrated, and that explains why they had it in higher rates than the men did. Yep. Yep, that makes sense. And they said likely started as a form, uh, a person that suffered from spontaneous CJD, and that just kind of kickstarted the cycle. So one person just randomly got it, and then it just amplifies from there. Right, now, right, right, okay. This was the 50s when it was kind of a big problem. Even after cannibalism was linked to Kuru, it was already being prohibited by the Australian government, and it was kind of like seen as more taboo, so the practice was dying out. Okay. All right. Although the disease has a much longer incubation period than the BSA or mad cow disease, about 10 to 13 years on average, but the record is 50. So the last person to die from this, the death was between 2006 and 2009, even though it was outlawed back in the 60s. Whoa, okay. Yeah, so it remained dormant in him in a very long time, and at least he got to live, he or she, I'm not sure, they got to live most of their life, you know? Wow. Yeah. And yeah, this is probably the only disease where if you go to the Wikipedia article and see the section for pre prevention of disease, it just says avoid practices of cannibalism. <laughs> That's a pretty good way to not worry about it. And it's largely considered not a problem anymore. I don't think cannibalism well, is practiced at all. That's probably what bat Wikipedia says about not getting COVID. <laughs> so... Just don't eat bats. Simple fix. Just, just avoid cannibalism, guys. You'll be fine. Uh, uh, one last thing is some people like to compare it to prions. You know, you'll go on YouTube and you'll see the clickbaity articles like when cows became zombies. <laughs> but if anything, this is the opposite of zombies. Because if the host bites you, you're fine. That's not how it spreads. The only way to get it is to eat the infected person, especially their brain. Not the other way around. So if anything is the anti-zombie virus, you have to eat the zombie's brains to become a zombie. Zombie bites you, nothing happens. And lastly, prions are incredibly rare. Like I said, sometimes people can just randomly get them. It's not fully understood why. But most estimates put it like one in a million chance. It's not really something to worry about. And the people that do get it, they usually get it like very later in life. So you're not just going to drop dead from prions. You're probably going to be fine. Although there is no way to diagnose, no way to diagnose or test for it. They can only really see after the fact when they look at your brain. Got it. But yeah, that's my bit on prions. Nice. That was really cool. Yep. And there's plenty of other diseases. Uh, deer have something called what? Chronic wasting syndrome, chronic yep. wasting disease. Yep, yep, yep. Is, so that's also a prion? Yes, it also is. Oh, uh, okay. So just don't oh. eat the nervous tissue of the deer. You'll be fine. All right. Sounds good. All right. So my turn? Yep. What you got for me? All right. 
So for this topic, I decided to flip the theme on its head a bit, pun intended, um, because while this organism does have a brain, it's very different from our own. And it's also proof that not all intelligence is built the same way. I'm going to be talking about octopi. Okay. All right. I know they're funky. Oh, they really are. And it's amazing. I love octopi so much, especially after researching this episode. So first, is that actually the plural of octopi or octopus? I like octopi a little better. It might be octopuses, but octopi is more fun to say. So I'm going to go with octopi. I don't care if I'm wrong, really. (laughs) You'll take it to your grave. Exactly. I'm even if I'm grammatically incorrect, it's more like I said, it's more fun to say. I don't care. All right, well, I can't argue with that. Yeah, there you go. So, um, also, I wrote the entire script with octopi as the plural, so... Well, I also said that I was going to call it BSE to be simple and be more technical, and then I proceeded to call it mad cow disease in all of my notes following <laughs> that. So, <laughs> it's okay to alternate halfway through. Uh, all right, fair enough. But I am stick- sticking with octopi here, so... Before I get into octopi, though, I want to like give a brief kind of overview of how your typical brain is set up, just so I can then compare it to how octopi brains work, and you can see how, how different they really are. So um, the vast majority of your nervous system is contained within what's called the central nervous system, which consists of your brain and your spine, Right. Your brain processes signals. They're sent down through the spine and out to the rest of your body. Now, once it leaves your spine, um, it is the, the signals from your brain then enter what is known as your peripheral nervous system, um, which includes all of your nerve endings and all the neurons that send signals out to various muscle groups and also receive signals from those muscle groups and from your skin and all your senses and so on and so forth, right? all your organs, uh, basically any signal that that leaves your spine or comes back to your spine is from the peripheral nervous system. So your nervous system is divided into two parts, the central nervous system, your brain and your spine, and your peripheral nervous system, which includes all the neurons and nerve endings that are outside of those two main organs. Um, they're in charge of receiving signals from your central nervous system and relaying information back, generally. Now, in terms of the actual number of neurons, your brain and your spine, as you would expect, have an overwhelming number of neurons compared to your peripheral nervous system. Um, By the way, your central nervous system is typically abbreviated as CNS. Your peripheral nervous system is PNS. And I bring this up only because when I was doing research for this episode, uh, I wanted to figure out exactly what the relative size of your peripheral nervous system was to your central nervous system. And um, I actually Googled the phrase average human PNS size. (laughs) Got some very strange and unexpected results. (laughs) The first thing at the top of the page said that my safe search was off. (laughs) So don't do that. Don't do that. If anyone is listening at home, don't do it with a work computer. Definitely not with a work computer. I wouldn't even do that with your personal computer. And I and I know from experience. Anyway, but 
almost all information is processed within your central nervous system, right? Your peripheral nervous system is primarily there to receive and send signals. That's more or less it, generally. So, now that we know how your nervous system works, now we're going to talk about octopi. So, octopi are built in a very different way cerebrally. For starters, they don't have spines because they're not vertebrates. So they don't have the same kind of signal system that we do because there's no spine down which to send signals. With this in mind, Aaron, where do you think the vast majority of an octopus's neurons are located? You, uh, I want to guess his tentacles. Actually, yes, they are located in their arms. So more than half of all octopus neurons are found within their eight arms while only about 9% are found within the central nervous system itself. So, um, the rest, now that remaining, you know, 20-30% are found within the optic lobes around their eyes, which, depending on who you ask, could be part of the central nervous system. Um, eyes are part of the nervous system. But the central nervous system. Oh, central, I don't know about that. Right. Some people will consider the eyes to be part of the central nervous system in humans. Sources that I read about with octopi said they're not. So it's kind of a gray area. But either way, more than half are not found on their on what we would consider their head. They're found within their arms. So this is crazy when you compare it to humans. Almost all of our neurons are found within the brain and an even larger proportion in the central nervous system. In terms of like the sheer number of neurons, like I said... The, the peripheral nervous system is an afterthought. Um, for an octopus, though, the peripheral nervous system houses the vast majority of the neurons in their body. Dang, our PNS is just a chode in comparison. Yeah, our PNS is really need to up their game, man. They're just, they're just not large enough. And trust me, don't look up average octopi PNS size. No. You're going to get some weird stuff from Japan. <laughs> you really will. I will say this, though. Um, PNS size matters, guys. <laughs> Moving on. Um, what this means, though, for an octopus is that each individual arm has almost as many neurons as its brain. So, while all that's incredible, don't get me wrong, the octopi's or the octopus's uh, central nervous system is still very important. Um pretty much all of their learning, decision-making, and memory aspects are still contained within that, uh, one, within that one area. But, you know, and this makes sense, because if you think about it, if you have a completely decentralized nervous system in this way, you have to have something that kind of unites everything and keeps it all together and working in good order. And that's Otherwise, the, all the arms would be fighting. Right, exactly. Something like that. So you need something to corral all this craziness going on in the arms. However, what happens within an octopus is that the arms receive more general commands from the central nervous system and then process them. Um, and then more specific and intricate arm movements are handled almost entirely within the actual arm itself. It's the way I kind of think about it is that you it almost works um, kind of like a corporate structure where you have general commands that will, or big picture ideas that'll come down from higher ups. And then the ideas get more and more specific as you move down. 
So that kind of that's kind of how it works here. You get general commands from the central nervous system, and then the arms kind of figure out more specifically how they're going to make that work. So what each arm will do is it will integrate information from the arm itself with commands from the brain, and then send signals out to you know the suction cups and the muscles that are contained within the arm. Um, this area that processes all this information within each arm is called the axial nerve cord. Um, I like to call it the arm brain. The little arm brain. The little arm brain, just for simplicity's sake. Um, and in humans, by the way, all of this happens within the brain, whether it is conscious or unconscious. So whether it's you moving your arm or me talking into the mic right now or my heart beating, all of that is happening and being processed within my brain and my central nervous system. None of it is happening. My arm is not acting of its own accord. Neither are my vocal cords. But in an octopi, that's pretty much how it works. Um, the brain will send a general signal, and then the arm will kind of take that information into account and use signals that it's getting from the neurons in the arm and, you know, inf and uh, carry out an action, basically. All right, I have a question now. Sure. So a lot of, like, the... There's a lot of neurons and, like, nervous tissue in the arms of the octopus. Right, right. Is it possible to concuss one by slapping the arm really hard? Or, like, paralyze the arm? Um, no, think about it. If someone hits your head really hard, you get knocked out. And I'm pretty sure that's from, like, your brain being jostled. I'm going to say no. I don't know the exact answer, but my guess would be no for a couple reasons. One of them I'll actually talk about later on in this episode. But another is that in humans, um, a lot of concussive damage doesn't actually happen from the impact itself. It has from it's caused by the brain hitting the side of your skull or the inside of your skull. So if somebody hits you like that initial impact isn't what's causing the concussion, it's the brain being jostled within your skull cavity. And octopi don't have skulls, so... I'm going to say no. That's my rationale. I could be totally off base with that. Well, but we have to guess. try it now. <laughs> you just got to go and whack an octopus around. But you got to make sure you hit all eight arms. Otherwise, it's not going to work. All eight arms. Or maybe you can just knock out the one arm if you hit the nerve. Yeah, but then you got to do it seven more times. Because otherwise... Well, that's a proper experiment right there. They've done experiments like this, and I'll talk about them later on. We get eight replicates for each octopus. That's a bargain. <laughs> N equals eight with one octopus. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but yeah, so like I was saying, the comparison that I'll use from Game of Thrones, of course, because I promised to use as many references as possible, is oh, that oops. human brains octop uh, operate more like the White Walkers in the Army of the Dead, where you have... Uh, where you have the soldiers being the foot soldiers being directly controlled pretty much in this hive mind type situation by the white walkers as zombies in octopi. It's more like Jon Snow, the, the Jon Snow army that's fighting them or Jon Snow's ar army that is fighting the white walkers because he's giving like general commands. And then there are commanders beneath him that are kind of figuring out more specific ways to carry out those commands. And then, the soldiers even beneath that are acting semi-autonomously as opposed to like kind of in this wave in the same way that um, in the way that the white walkers and the army of the dead are. You understood, you understood none of that. 
but some of our audience might. Most of our audience probably will, actually, and that's why you should watch the show, Aaron. So... I have um, yet to have a single person contact me and bring up Game of Thrones. It's coming, trust me. Um, anyway, in fact, on an octopus, each suction cup on the arm has its own nerve ending ball, which will then communicate with the arm brain. And individual suction cups do not actually communicate directly with each other. They all go directly to the arm brain, and then the arm brain will send signals back. So suction cups are not actually in communication with each other on the arm. Hmm, that doesn't seem very efficient. It doesn't, but then that's kind of how our nervous systems work. Like yeah. our fingers aren't communicating. Um, yeah, but we only have five fingers. They got God knows how many suction cups per one tentacle. Sure, sure. But like all of our body parts aren't directly communicating with each other. They all are. All their information is processed within the brain. And it, I mean, we're talking about electrical signals here. Like these are all going pretty quickly. So efficiency is, you know, you, you can, in order to centrally process everything, you can compromise a bit of efficiency when signals are moving that fast. Although, now here's where shit gets really crazy, as if it hadn't already. It has been said um, that some movements in the octopus's arm are totally divorced from the brain. The arms are acting completely independently. Um, severed octopus arms still respond to stimuli hours after amputation in a way that human limbs definitely do not. So that arm brain is still functioning even after the arm itself has been severed. I'll tell you what, I'll take your word for it. I don't want to, I don't want to compare the two. I don't think anyone does. (laughs) No, 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 they do not. Now, what's more incredible still is that some scientists think that an octopus's brain or an octopus yeah, an octopus's brain is not able to distinguish between arms. So under this hypothesis, the brain just kind of sends out a general signal to all the arms at once. So if only one arm is supposed to be moving, seven other arms would basically have to completely ignore a signal from the central nervous system. Which is crazy. Um, So it's just a free-for-all, whoever gets there first? Yeah, so it's like, if you only want to move one arm, like, all the other arms have to then say, no, I'm not doing that, and the one arm has to be like, yeah, that's a good idea. And this is actually supported by experiments that they've done on certain parts of an octopus brain, where if you activate certain parts of it to send a certain signal to the arms or send a certain signal, um, the exact same signal gets sent to all the arms. And we know this because the same movement is produced in all the arms or at least in multiple arms. So if you were going to only move one arm, it would require a significant input from the other brains to ignore us, the other arm brains that is to ignore a signal from the central nervous system which, again, is totally, totally alien when you compare it to our own central nervous system. Absolutely. And all of this craziness is not only the basis for, you know, a functioning organism, but um, some, some scientists believe that octopi actually might be conscious and might have a consciousness. So, um, and so to put this in perspective, 
like in terms of what kind of intelligence we're talking about here, octopi have about the same number of neurons as a dog does. Um, okay, does that mean anything, though? I'm going to talk about that. I personally believe that octopi are smarter than dogs, and that this measure isn't really a definitive assessment of an animal's intelligence, like you were saying. Because um, I know people will say, like, humans are just complex, but there are, like, moths and soybeans that have, like, eight times the genetic information that we do. Right. Right. So that I bring that up more as like a general idea that in terms of intelligence, octopi are at least on par with a lot of vertebrates that people might consider to be intelligent. Um, you know, at least on par with dogs, um, where they rank exactly is up to interpretation, but they're on that same kind of playing field as what I'm getting at by bringing up that particular statistic. Although what that the consciousness of an octopi is is very difficult for us to understand because we have such a different brain structure. And so it's really, yeah, it's so wonderfully wild and different from our own. Um, they've shown that they've shown a lot of intelligent behavior, like the ability to open jars from the inside, um, the ability to, to do mazes, um, but they've also they also have done a lot of other really intriguing things that don't demonstrate their intelligence. Um, so in New Zealand, there was this one aquarium that had some had an octopus, and um, it learned how to turn off the lights because it would squirt water at the light bulbs and cause <laughs> them to short circuit and blow out. Okay, that's pretty funny. And so eventually this became so expensive that they had to just release the octopus back into the wild. That's what they had to do? They didn't just put a piece of like plexiglass over the light? No, apparently that wasn't possible. I would have done that day one. As soon as they realized the octopus is doing that, was there a reason or did he just not like the lights? I I don't know. I guess sometimes you just just want a dark room, man. (laughs) He goes, no, turn those lights off. Get them out of here. Anyway, um, at the same place, by the way, there's another octopus who, for some reason, really hated one particular member of the staff. (laughs) (laughs) Don't know why. Um, It was a race thing. It was racist, (laughs) wasn't it? I don't know. Um, But whenever this person would walk by the tank, the octopus would just squirt water at them. (laughs) And only this one person. And that's what's incredible about this, is that the octopus was able to recognize different people and distinguish between them instead of being like, oh, it's just a, a, you know, oh, that's just a person. It's, oh, it's this particular fucking person, and I hate them. I'm going to squirt water at them. So, um, I don't know. Now I'm thinking, what if the octopus was racist, but they didn't want to publish that because, like, you know, you don't want bad publicity for octopus. <laughs> yeah, no one, no one wants octopi to get canceled on Twitter, man. That's just... <laughs> he holds out a little sign, says, go back to your country. No, no. No, we can't have racist octopi. Can't have it. Um, But... Scoots around the tank with a little MAGA 2024 hat. <laughs> or maybe it's just like one arm was racist, something like that. Yeah, it's got a t-shirt on that says mollusks for Trump. 
the the one arm's like throwing rocks at dude's like i got no say in this like i don't know what this dude's doing he's just throwing pebbles in the middle of the room like i'm gonna build the wall right here (laughs) anyway um so these anecdotes are funny but the point the overarching point that i'm getting at here is that um octopi are really smart which means and because of how different their nervous system is they're probably the closest thing we'll ever have to coming into contact with an alien intelligence because they perceive the world and react to it in such a profoundly different way than we do. Yeah. They like to squirt water at it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We flip a switch. They squirt water. (laughs) So different. I guess, you know, uh, primitive humans, their solution to something was hit it with a rock. So (laughs) they're not too far off. And honestly, if something's annoying me, there's that base instinct right there. Throw something at it. Who knows? Maybe in a few million years, like the descendants of modern octopi will be keeping primates in bubbles. And those primates will just be like blowing air at all their all the octopi electronics to cause to, you know, mess them up. It's probably slinging poo at them. <laughs> I mean, we see what the chimpanzees do. Maybe. That's knows? a steady supply of munition. It definitely is. <laughs> But anyway, yeah, that's my bit on Octopi. All right, and... really cool. And now I wonder if they did ever become really advanced, like people, you think they would do handshakes? Because um, I wonder I if they could just get... pinch that little arm brain in just the right spot and make the one go, whoo, and then like the arm passes <laughs> out. I, I think that would be very difficult for an Octopi to do because you got to pick which arm, you know? Uh, all all the arms will start competing about which one's going to shake be the handshake arm, you know. It, it's just too complicated. I, I'd say they should just skip the handshake and go right for a hug. Get all I, get all eight arm arms involved right off the bat, you know. It's a funky hug. <laughs> Very complicated, but I think it's worth it in the end. So, what are you thinking about for our next to- our next theme, Aaron? So I had an idea. Uh tale as old as time that happens time and time again which is invasive species oh okay i can do this and you know there's a whole slew to pick from oh there really is i'm i'm very down let's let's do that okay invasive species it is all right sounds good if you enjoy this podcast episode please give us a like and follow on your podcast app of choice if you have a suggestion for an episode you can send it to us on Twitter at Soup Podcast or email it to us at theprimordialsouppot at gmail.com. All right. Sounds good. Until next time, I'm Rustin Perret. I'm Aaron Johnson. See ya. See ya. <laughs>